This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Wiser Books. Wiser Books is celebrating 60 years of publishing the very best in occult and esoterica. You can check out their extensive and inspiring range of reading material by going to wiserbooks.com. That's W-E-I-S-E-R books.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. How are you? It was a new moon in Scorpio the other night, so maybe you're feeling a little emotional, a little contemplative, a little shadowy. That is perfectly great, because that's the ideal mood for today's episode, where my guest is spirit photographer Shannon Taggart. Shannon uses her camera to try and capture images of ghosts and other otherworldly entities, or at the very least, images of the people who attempt to communicate with those spirits. We're talking mediums, psychics, clairvoyants. And whether or not you believe in life after death, Shannon's pictures of seances and apparitions are undeniably striking and uncanny. And they got me thinking about the wider relationship between technology and the invisible world. Right now, you are hearing my voice through the magic and science of machinery. You're listening on your computer, your phone, maybe using headphones or Wi-Fi. And if you think about it, it's kind of miraculous that you and I are able to collapse time and space and feel present with each other right in this very moment. We often think of technology as being antithetical to the occult. And yet there's a long history of folks who have used the devices of their day to try and make contact with the other side. Thomas Edison attempted to create what the media later dubbed a spirit phone, an invention intended to communicate with the deceased. In 1920, Edison told American Magazine, quote, I have been at work for some time building an apparatus to see if it is possible for personalities which have left this earth to communicate with us. Though it seems Edison wasn't so successful with his attempts, he is part of a legacy of inquisitive venturers who've been certain that there's more to this world than meets the eye, and who use technology for spiritual means. Now, Shannon Taggart isn't an inventor per se, she's an artist, 
but many great artists are also part of a lineage of people who see machinery not as dehumanizing or even entirely objective, as we're often led to believe, but rather as a tool for engaging in mystery. Some of my favorite artists are those like David Lynch and Bjork, who use the latest technology, but embrace and even encourage the inevitable mistakes, accidents, and imprecisions that can happen even with the most up-to-date devices. They use the proverbial ghosts in their machines to probe the spirit and the heart through their art. It's a sort of glitch witchery, a method of getting to something deeper, darker, and that feels as if it's revealing a hidden truth. Bjork's new album Utopia is dropping this week, and she said that the first single, called The Gate, is, quote, essentially a love song, but I say love in a more transcendent way. I think that this new album is about a love that's even greater. It's about rediscovering love, but in a spiritual way, for lack of a better word. Shannon Taggart's photographs are transcendent love songs of a sort, too. And in a moment, she and I will be talking about grief, ghosts, and the third eye that is her camera. But first, technology has conjured a few of you dear spirits in our inbox, so we're going to see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches! One listener, whose name I'm going to keep anonymous, and you'll see why, writes... I just want to thank you and Bree for talking about the concept of privacy with magic. It was a relief to hear that Bree keeps her personal altar workings off of Instagram. I'm very private with my magic, and it feels vulnerable, intimate, and personal. In the age of hashtag witches of Instagram, I feel a little bit weird keeping it to myself when so many want to share it with the world. Neither is wrong or right, I know, but I felt such a wave of relief to hear that others keep some things for themselves as well. Well, first of all, thank you, Mystery Witch, for listening and for writing. Yeah, we're talking about technology today, and social media is definitely a technological development that has, on the plus side, allowed for us weirdos to find the others, as Timothy Leary famously said. And from my perspective, it's been liberating to connect with other people who share my witchly interests and obsessions, and even some of the beliefs that I hold. You know, for so much of my life, I was a solitary practitioner, and it wasn't until my 20s that I started meeting with other folks and working in a group setting or writing about witchcraft publicly. And the sense of community that I found has been, on the whole, very nourishing and empowering for me. On the other hand, there are elements of my practice that are completely private and that I will never share with anybody. And that's because they're very personal and there's something meaningful and potent about communicating directly to spirit in my own way, with my own methods, and without a sense of public performance or self-consciousness. As you said, there's no right or wrong here, 
and you can change your attitude about how much you feel compelled to reveal or conceal as many times as you want to over the course of your life. Now, on to my guest. Shannon Taggart's photographs of mediumship, phantoms, and rituals have been exhibited and featured internationally, including in New York Times Magazine, Time, Discover, and Newsweek. Her work has been recognized by such illustrious organizations as Nikon, Magnum Photos, and the International Photography Awards. From 2014 through 2016, she was scholar and artist-in-residence at the Morbid Anatomy Museum here in New York. Shannon's forthcoming book, Seance, Spiritualist Ritual and the Search for Ectoplasm, is currently being crowdfunded through Unbound.com. Shannon lives in Brooklyn, and she floated over to my place to talk to me live about photographing the dead. Shannon Taggart, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Pam. You are a photographer. I, in my mind, think of you as a spiritualist photographer or a spirit photographer. I'm wondering how you define yourself. Well, yeah, that's a a really good place to start. I kind of define myself as a pure photography geek, like a photo geek. I mean, I adore all kinds of photography and I've actually been working professionally as a photographer for about 18 years. So I've photographed everything, advertising, public relations work. I was worked as a photojournalist at newspapers and it was kind of in the middle of all that where I started photographing spiritualism kind of as a documentary project but then I was made aware of this other tradition of photography called spirit photography. Okay so let's let's start with some rudimentary definitions for listeners who might not be familiar with these these terms. So when we're talking about spiritualism that's a religion right? Yes. Spiritualism is an American-born religion. It started in upstate New York in 1848. The biggest point that spiritualism tries to make is that death is not the end, it's a transition. And so that communicating with spirits of the dead is to illustrate this fact. It didn't begin as a religion. It was kind of an accidental movement that was inspired by the actions of two teenage girls named Kate and Margaret Fox. Always the teenage girls, man. (laughs) So it was um, they claimed to be in contact with the spirit of a man buried beneath their home and they ended up drawing a lot of attention to themselves through this they had a kind of a system of knocking and talking and in uh, in code with this spirit and they called that the spiritual telegraph it just ignited a religious movement that spouted up around their activities. And where was this exactly? Um, It was in Hydesville, New York, um, which is no longer Hydesville. It's actually outside Newark, New York, which is less than an hour outside of Rochester, New York. But their first public seances happened in Rochester, New York. And they actually happened 
about a half a mile down the same street from where Kodak headquarters were built. So that there's this really... Uh, Kodak, in- the photography company. Yeah, so there's this really interesting geographic link between where spiritualism was brought to the masses and where photography was brought to the masses, which I find very interesting. That's so interesting. And so was photography a component of what the Fox sisters were doing at all? And not initially. So photography began in 1837 and then spiritualism sprung up in 1848. And soon they were brought together in attempts to try to create evidence of the unseen realm or evidence of the spiritual realm. And this was at a time where photography was being used in many ways to try to investigate the invisible. Spiritualism came about at a time when science was discovering that there were invisible forces at work. There were some efficacy to things that you could not see, such as radiation, the power of electricity was being harnessed. Germ theory was discovered, the fact that like bacteria was causing diseases and we could see it through microscopes and, and then photograph it. And there was all this disembodied communication happening with the telegraph, the telephone, recording voices. Voices were singing without the body. So there was like a real hope that everything invisible would finally be seen or shown or proven. There was a real belief in photography as this seer that could see what our senses could not and that we would be able to show these things. I think it's so interesting that you just use the word hope because so much of my understanding of spiritualism and spirit photography is that it's all predicated on the hope that when someone passes away, we're going to get to perhaps see them again or speak with them again or or the hope that they're not really gone. Is that, do you think, one of the driving forces of spiritualism as a religion? It's to gain knowledge and guidance and healing from the other side, but also to let the living know that there is more, that you go on, that your dead don't leave you. So it's a sort of comfort seeking in a way, would you say? Yes, but it's it's also a lot of the early spiritualists were intellectuals, reformers. They were the seekers of the day. They were the radicals of the day. There were many Nobel Prize winners who were interested in spiritualism and mavericks of the day. They saw it as not just a religion. They saw it as a philosophy and a science. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was very much in the spirit of um, illuminating and proving through fact. But one thing I learned through spending a lot of time with spiritualists is that getting messages from the dead and spiritual healing, it's all motivated as a force to heal the living for guidance for it's not for entertainment necessarily, even though that aspect is there and Mm -hmm. definitely a part of it and something that I think should be embraced and not looked down upon that that there is this entertainment element involved but it really is the activities are based with the intention of healing so the relationship between spiritualism the religion and spirit photography is that one is a belief that you can still communicate with the dead somehow and the other is one of many tools by which we can do that do you think that's fair to say Spiritualism has always embraced technology as a way to extend the senses and to interact or communicate with the other side. 
The first spirit photographer was a man named William Mumler in Boston. He was an amateur photographer and he made a picture of himself that seemed to have the ghosted image of his deceased cousin in it. And he was confused by this and didn't really understand it and thought it was maybe part of the photographic process. Maybe it was a photographic accident. And he showed it to a spiritualist and they just took it and ran with it, published it in a paper, started announcing somebody had photographed spirits. Yeah, they and, thought it was proof. Yes, yes. And and this is very interesting because this is the first time where the photographic reality is called into question. You know, to the believer, this is a spiritual revelation. This is, this is um, a shocking kind of visual proof of what they suspected was, is true, is that your spirits are around you. To the skeptic or people like P.T. Barnum, it's a manipulated exposure. It's obviously a trick. And so these two interpretations caused a lot of social tension at the time. And and it, it does highlight the fact that with photographic communication, interpretation is a huge element always. And mm-hmm. that's it's one of the first time that our uh, attention is brought to this fact. Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity there. So getting back to spiritualism, I just want to trace the history a little bit to get a little more context here. So this is mid-19th century. Um, The Fox sisters have this system of rapping, and and, and it kind of sets people's imaginations on fire. And and somehow that turns into a codified religion that it's still happening today, right? There's still spiritualist churches and... Yes, definitely. I mean, I believe the first English demonstration of mediumship was in 1854. So, I mean, it spread like wildfire throughout the Western world. And then even through France, it was then kind of turned into a philosophy called spiritism. And then that went through South America, Brazil, Puerto Rico, through the French influence. So, and, and, you know, today we have a spiritismo in Puerto Rico. In um, Brazil, there's a big spiritism movement too. In America, we don't see as much spiritualism. In England, there's lots of spiritualist churches, but despite being an American-born religion, it's pretty, I think it's pretty unfamiliar to most Americans. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a community called Lilydale that is not far from Buffalo, New York, which is around the area you grew up, isn't that right? Yes. And Lilydale is a place that I know is very close to your heart personally, and even though you live in Brooklyn, you've become kind of the photographer in residence there. You, you've been photographing Lilydale for a long time. So first of all, what is Lilydale? And how did you get involved in documenting all of the amazing spiritualism that happens there? Okay, so Lilydale is the world's largest spiritualist community. And it's located an hour south of Buffalo. It's in between the cities of uh, Fredonia and Jamestown. It's a small hamlet and it's it's got its own zip code and it has gates that let you in. And when you walk in, it's like a Victorian cottage town. And I often describe it as a very analog town. And it's kind of an amazing place because somehow a bit of the Victorian era has really been kept there, is really still alive there. The first time I was ever in Lilydale, I felt like I had time traveled. And it's such a special place. I haven't, I've never been any place like it. And that's one of the reasons it's so special to me. And um, 
it just feels very magical when you're there. And and what can people find there when they visit? In the summer, it kind of operates as like a psychic summer camp or a spiritualist summer camp where you can take <laughs> classes in astral travel or you can learn like mediumship 101 or you can get a spiritual healing. So it's this tiny town and they have all these like outdoor spaces where they hold message services, which are gatherings where mediums go up to the front and there'll be benches in the woods and pick people to give clairvoyant messages to. Some people might be familiar with like John Edwards or, you know, some of those psychics who, who's the other one, the Long Island medium. So people who will meet strangers and try to bring messages through, presumably from the stranger's deceased loved ones. So a message service at Lilydale is people who have never met these mediums before. They show up to a place they all sit together and then there's one medium usually who's bringing messages through and calling on random members of the audience or how Um, does it work yeah it's very much like what you see in john edwards or with the long island medium except i think in the long island medium she goes up to people in like the grocery store like you know i have a message for you the spiritualists i know do not do that they're very (laughs) that's the one consensual that's one of the ones i always hear people complaining about like we don't do that but i I think that's for television but they ask permission if they can come to you with a message and it'll be usually in a message service maybe five six seven mediums but they go one at a time and give like three or four messages and it's just so you can see what mediumship is like it's just a simple demonstration and then if you want a more personal reading you would book an appointment with the mediums there i find the connection between spiritualism and feminism so interesting there's such a rich history there and and there's a book that you actually recommended to me called radical spirits mm-hmm. um, by ann browd is that right browdy i think ann browdy and it really catalogs how a lot of feminism Um, we're talking American feminism primarily or proto-feminism was catalyzed largely by people who believed in spiritualism. Susan B. Anthony used to hang out in Lilydale, Margaret Sanger. It's hugely important to the suffragette history because at the time women weren't allowed to speak in public, but the spiritualists let them. And so even though a lot of the suffragettes were not spiritualists, some were, they respected and benefited from spiritualism. I had the good fortune of getting to visit you in Lilydale when you were doing some projects there. And I noticed that most of the mediums were female. Does this feel like a largely female-driven belief system? Yeah, there are a lot of female mediums, but there there are male mediums too, and there mm-hmm. are, there always have been. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more often the case that it's female mediums, and it was also at a time where women weren't allowed to have many jobs, so it was like this new kind of way that they could have some power, or voice, or efficacy, and um, a new way of working. It was like a new occupation, and so the women really benefited from the role of being a medium like it allowed them to speak as as spirits that was another reason why it was more you know like well they're not speaking as themselves they're speaking as the spirits so Mm. it's a loophole there yeah so so there's that but i mean spiritualists in general many of them were reformers a lot of them were abolitionists they were 
for healthcare reform, for children's rights, for marriage reform, for free love. Victoria Woodhull, the first woman who ever ran for president in 1872, was a spiritualist medium and ran on a free love platform. Free love meant, oh, as a woman, you can choose who to give your love to. Like, Mm. you don't need to be told. And you're free to give that love and take it away whenever you want. Like, that is yours. Incredible. Yes. So... Let's get back to the work that you do in Lilydale. So you started going to Lilydale around what time in your life? It was in 2001. And it was not far from your house. Was this a place that you were aware of when you were a kid or a teenager? How did you even learn about it? So when I was 16 years old, which was not in 2001, it was earlier, my cousins, I grew up Catholic in Buffalo, and my cousins would go up to Lilydale for readings And one of them received this message during a message service where my grandfather came and and told these details about his death that ended up being true and weren't really talked about in my family. And I remember everybody being really shocked. I remember the, you know, the shockwaves going through everybody and everybody being so, you know, astounded that this had happened. And I just remember thinking, how would somebody know such a thing? Mm Mm-hmm. And I just became curious at that point. And that's right around the time when I discovered photography. But in 2001, I was working as a photojournalist and doing public relations photography. And I was not really excited by a lot of the assignments I was working on. I mean, I was very interested in documentary photography. So I thought, oh, I'll just make a one, I'll spend one summer making a quirky little project about this unique town. And it ended up turning into this huge body of work. It sounds like you started kind of anthropologically almost like you were curious to document this population of people who had these interesting or alternative belief systems but was there a moment for you when you were like oh my goodness maybe there's actually something to this or there there's something uncanny happening that felt a little more personal for you as an artist or just as a human being yes uh so when I first began the project I could not I really couldn't comprehend or wrap my brain around the fact that these very sane people were telling me that they spoke with dead people. Like, I couldn't put those two things together. Like, I couldn't understand. I had I knew nothing about spiritualism. And everyone in Lilita was so gracious. I mean, I would literally go knock on doors and be like, can you tell me about spiritualism? And people would. <laughs> and I, to this day, I'm, I'm just so thankful that they did because it ended up just being such a life-changing project and such an interesting experience in many ways. I think one of the first things... I was sitting on a reading with a woman named Gretchen Clark, and she's a fifth-generation spiritualist, and she was the first person who allowed me to photograph her while she was reading. And so I'm taking pictures, and she's doing a reading, and she starts, all of a sudden she's talking to her dead brother. He, like, jumped in her reading, and she's like, oh, he does this all the time. And, And it seems so ridiculous to me, and I was like, kind of laughing I mean we were all kind of laughing but she was like then she starts scolding her brother for jumping in and I just think oh that's so funny and then she pauses and says Shannon Margaret from Texas is here and I I said I I don't know what that means and she said she said Texas you'll know what Texas means and then my stomach just sank because I did have an aunt Margaret who lived in Texas and she had recently died oh my goodness and so it was just that feeling of going from laughing haha this is this is so not serious oh this is whatever this is this is like um a performance to flipping right over to margaret's here 
I mean, the changes in my body were such were so dramatic, you know, to go from laughing like, like, oh, you know, this is funny to, oh my gosh, something, something really is going Maybe on. Maybe there's here something to this. Yes. And after that point, were you a little less, I don't know if skeptical is the right word here, but, but did you find that your relationship to the work changed and to spiritualism overall changed moving forward from that point? Yes, in many ways. I mean, it's complicated and I still, I don't have any answers. In fact, like I I feel at this point, I have more questions than answers. And I mean, every day my kind of perspective shifts a little bit and I'm constantly in the state of questioning and in the state of wonder and amazement and kind of wanting to kind of stay in this mystery and that that's kind of where I am with it personally but I look back and I have met people too who who think oh these people are obviously you know they're obviously hucksters or they're obviously fooling themselves or they're obviously ignorant like I'm not saying I felt that way I'm saying I've met people who that's the way they describe it but I look at myself even when I first started thinking this can't be there's got to be an answer that explains everything and I definitely did not find an answer that explained everything Mm. so we're talking a lot about your experiences as you know the person perhaps getting the reading I want to talk about your photography specifically because for those of you who are listening who haven't seen Shannon's photography uh, first of all you must remedy that immediately it is gorgeous but Shannon your work it's not just documentary style you have some work that feels a little more reportage which is also very very beautiful but I've noticed that as you're delving deeper into this work you're allowing more for some aesthetic I don't know what you would call them, glitches, aberrations, there's orbs and auras and blur. Was that a conscious choice that you made too? Or did those things just kind of turn up in your photography and you thought, well, this is perfect? Well, I started to have some happy accidents with my camera. And like one of the first ones was I was photographing this woman at the Lilydale Museum and I was shooting film at the time and I got two frames with like a large purple orb And in both the frames, they were like right on the same spot on her shoulder. And I had never gotten anything like that before. And um, I wasn't shooting into the sun or anything. It was just like a very, a weird anomaly. And and an orb is essentially like a spherical. Yeah, like a circular. Light. Light. Blur. Yes. And this was a purple orb. And so I printed the photos and brought them back to her the next week. And I said, I got these pictures and they're very strange. I thought you might find them interesting. And she... She took them in her hand and looked at them for, you know, a few minutes and said, oh, that's Bob. And she was talking about her deceased husband. But I had never thought of assigning meaning to a photographic anomaly. And slowly, as I had different photographic accidents, I started to realize that they were talking about the invisible in a way that I couldn't with my camera, like in this unintentional way. I I soon became very frustrated photographing in seances, which it took me a little while to be able to photograph in seance situations, but I, I was eventually invited. And there was all this charged space and invisible activity and atmosphere and meaningful connections and correspondences that I couldn't see with my eyes. And 
I was struggling to photograph and I felt like the pictures were really not representing the psychological reality of what was happening and I became very frustrated with those those straight pictures and then I started to have accidents where for example one of the first seances I ever photographed a woman was everybody was clairvoyantly seeing a second face right next to her face that looked like her but didn't and it was, maybe it was her doppelganger or her spirit guide or her grandmother but they, they were saying it was floating peacefully right next to hers we could not see this with our eyes and I took a long exposure because of the light and when I got my film back there was a perfectly rendered second face floating right off of hers that I I just got chills when you said that <laughs> and I understand that that's a function of the shutter that it's a long exposure and there was some sort of motion maybe she moved I totally get that but it doesn't make the synchronicity any less any less hair raising for me it doesn't so I just started to kind of gradually embrace that and then work with it and then take that as far as I could and a lot of people as I went with this technique some spiritualists were confused like why are you doing this if it's not proving anything and then photography people I know are saying, well, you're just making blurry pictures. Why do you want to make bad, unprofessional pictures? I mean, because I'm doing things that are really considered unprofessional or sloppy or not technically correct. or Because um, they're not shar- sharp and precise? They're not sharp. They're letting in flare, light. They're allowing non-image forming material to come into the plane like many photographers want to control I mean as far as like studio photography goes you want to control and render exactly as you see it and you want to master you want to take control of that photographic process yeah and there's an element to what you're doing that's about surrendering yes and trying to mine the process for all its ambiguity and embrace it and see what happens and find meaning in it I I kind of almost look at it like photographic scrying where it's you know it's like an update of that ancient technique of like looking into a a surface or a pattern and trying to find messages or mine it for meaning Mm, yeah so scrying for those listeners who might not be familiar with it sometimes people would use like a black shiny stone or you know gazing into a crystal ball is scrying so to you the camera is like a scrying tool yeah, it can be. And right now, I'm more interested in that than I ever have been. And it's kind of amazing to me to go in these situations where somebody says that this invisible entity or spirit is taking over their body and speaking and communicating and then making an exposure that resonates with that body experience. And it, it, I'm not saying I'm straight up documenting this experience. I'm making a picture that resonates with it. I'm trying to get at this photographic synchronicity. And that's the thing about paranormal, for lack of a better term. I don't know if like that's the best term to be using, but paranormal experiences. It's when the objective reality overlaps with the subjective reality, with your interior reality. So it's something that's almost literally impossible to photograph. Exact, like to document because you I can never be inside somebody when they're having these experiences and I can I can't even if, if I'm having one I can't photograph it because it's interior but I can make work that 
resonates with it or correlates or tries to induce a similar experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what is the difference for you between the experience you're having as the photographer and then the experience you're having after the fact when you view the image? Do you find that you're surprised by the image that comes through? Yeah, I'm often surprised by my photographs. And that's one of the reasons I'm so addicted to photography, because it's it's really amazing to put yourself in a situation and then try to see what happens or you, to kind of make photographs that you don't expect that literally shock you, like the, you don't understand where they come from. And I'm really interested in playing with that aspect, along with you know, I kind of describe this project as part documentary, part ghost story. It really is blurring the line between anthropology and art. And it's very much like a magical reality I'm entering into. But at the same time, I am documenting spiritualism in a very serious way, meaning as far as I know, I'm the only documentarian photographing spiritualists and going to photograph physical mediumship seances and um, not that people haven't done projects about it, but I'm I'm very seriously documenting the culture and mm-hmm. I'm unaware of any other documentarian who's doing that visually. Yeah, and, and it's kind of this double role you have because you are both documenting for posterity that these people exist and this culture takes the form that it takes in this world. And yet you're also trying to capture the experience of seeing ghosts or hearing ghosts, right? It's a really blurry, blurry line for you as the photographer, I would imagine. Yeah, it has. It's been more blurred as I've gone on. And I mean, I actually left the project in 2005 because I couldn't get past the binary of is it true or is it false? Mm -hmm. Like, I just... I couldn't say anything definitively either way. So I thought maybe this is a pointless project. Maybe this is something you can't say anything about photographically. But I took a break and I just read a lot about the history of psychical research and really delved into the history of spirit photography, which I I should note, I never learned about in college or um, in any of the photo history books I, I studied from. I was introduced to spirit photography by spiritualists. Then in 2005, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York hosted The Perfect Medium. I remember that show. And that that was the first time I learned about spirit photography. Yeah. So I was like so excited for that show because I had learned about it four years prior. But that was way after I had graduated college. So then delving into this history and realizing that, oh, there's this whole hidden photographic history of people trying to visualize spirits or communicate with the other side using photography and some of it was very serious and now we see it as hoaxy or it's just it's early trick photography which much of it is but I think there's a lot more there there's a lot of ambiguity going on there's a lot of play with the process there's a saying a lot about photography but there are also these really rich visual metaphors that talk about grief and love and loss in a really powerful way. And also I realized after discovering this photographic treasure trove that spiritualists had managed to create an original iconography using photography. It's like the first religious iconography using the medium of photography rather than painting. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is pretty amazing and that 
you know, nobody's making fun of Catholic paintings. Exactly. It is always astounding to me how the relationship between art and I'll just call it the supernatural, whether or not that's the occult or spiritualism or magic or any other word, but that traditionally anyone who considers themselves, you know, a a good critical thinker and an intellectual, this kind of content makes them embarrassed almost, or it makes them roll their eyes or want to dismiss it or reject it somehow. And yet there's some really exciting things that we're starting to see in the space of um, museums and institutions and academia where finally we're acknowledging that even if you don't believe in this, it's important to study the fact that these ideas have influenced society, culture, art, literature for thousands of years and certainly the birth of the modern art movement was woven with beliefs about trying to have a transcendent experience or contact and quote-unquote other side right oh definitely and I mean what's happening in art history now is really kind of fascinating because they're realizing that Georgiana Houghton who was a spiritualist medium and an artist predates Kandinsky by 50 years mm-hmm. and Hilma of Klint also her. I mean these women were doing abstract works long before it was supposedly invented mm-hmm. and it was coming from what they said was a spirit world who are directing their actions and their hands and their their paintings It makes me think quite a bit of, you know, and I know we're skipping ahead in time, but the surrealists and how they often would start to embrace things like accidents and chance in their painting because A, they just thought aesthetically interesting things happened, but B, they thought perhaps something else was coming through, some message was coming through, whether from the unconscious or the other side. Do you think there's a relationship there? Yes, definitely. The Surrealists were very much inspired by the spiritualists and all of their techniques. Their use of the trance state, the automation, Mm -hmm. automatic writing, the automatic act. But they were, yeah, they were more inclined to believe that it was coming from the unconscious. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty obsessed with candles. And that's why I'm over the moon to tell you about Mithras candles. They are my favorite. They're made of pure beeswax and handcrafted by my extremely magical pals in Philadelphia. They have a gorgeous drip style that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. They smell like honey-scented paradise, and they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Mithras candles are a perfect addition to any home or sacred space, and I can't recommend them more highly. They're available now at MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm here talking with Shannon Taggart. So Shannon, we've talked a lot about the images that you're creating. I'm curious what the reactions have been both from the people who have I don't know if modeled is the right word uh, but but the people who you feature in your photographs as well as some of the viewers what has their experience been when they see the final result of the imagery 
a lot of the mediums that I've, I show the photograph to, they find meaning in them and can often direct me on what they see as happening to them. I try to create images that have both spiritual and mechanical explanations and to like create as much ambiguity or room for interpretation as possible. That makes some people uncomfortable or some of the pictures, I mean, a lot of seances happen under red light and some people find the images scary or grotesque or disturbing. I, I guess it just totally depends on the person. I mean, I've learned to appreciate that if people are repulsed by my work, that that reaction is also a valid one. Mm-hmm. And that because they're destabilized, right? There's something about your work I find it incredibly beautiful, but there are images that are disturbing. And I could see how someone might feel really uncomfortable with some of the images. Right. Um, I mean, I even remember with you when we were looking at work to go into the Occult Humanities conference um, Yes, and just to interject. So I curated an art show last year for NYU called Language of the Birds, Occult and Art. And Shannon had gorgeous work in the show. But I remember when you and I were going over the pictures and there was one I liked in particular that I thought maybe would work for the show. And you said, no, that's too, it's too much. Yeah. And that's just because one of the great ironies of my life is that as much as I love the supernatural and the occult, I actually am super sensitive and get scared and I can be kind of a wuss. Like, I only like some horror movies, but not all horror movies. And yeah, there are some images that you create that get under my skin. And I take that as... I'm doing something right. I'm I'm drawing you into a space where you are um, forced to confront some things or to question or or to wonder about what's really going on there. And that is my goal. So um, thank you. The the bridge that you're trying to gap, or maybe a better way of putting it is that you're intentionally trying not to gap um, between truth and trickery it's such an interesting space and you are certainly as you said earlier being intentional about things like exposure I have had the very good fortune of getting to be photographed by you uh, which was such a treat and I, I won't give away any of your techniques or tricks but there, there, there are certain things that you're doing to kind of encourage the, I don't know, spiritual presences or visual aberrations that come through. So what is your attitude about how much you're actually in control of here? Yeah, so the, the portrait series, I made a portrait series inspired by the spiritualist work. And that's when I'm trying to create situations where chance becomes an element where I'm using different devices during long exposures to create a visual but when I'm in, when I'm photographing the spiritualist situations, I'm just allowing the situation to be as it is. Like I'm not, I'm just using the motion or the the light that I've been presented with. I see. Okay, I didn't um, realize that. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's because in a portrait situation, you're in total control, and I wanted to not be in control. And the only way to do that was to add these other elements. So I imagine you've seen some incredibly strange things. One thing that I am really curious about is the presence of 
ectoplasm. And this is a word that I think many of us are familiar with because of the film Ghostbusters and and the various sequels. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Ghostbusters specifically in, in a minute. But have you actually seen ectoplasm and what what is ectoplasm exactly? Um, so ectoplasm, if you've ever seen the old spirit photographs, they're like the white streams that seem to emerge from different places of the medium's body and some take shape into form or seem to have um, two-dimensional faces inside of it. Ectoplasm is, for spiritualists, it's a paradoxical substance that is both spiritual and material at the same time so it's like the merging of the spiritual and the material worlds and it's supposed to signify that life and death remain connected Mm. and it's very a lot of the references of the sights and smells and descriptions of ectoplasm resonate with vomit menstruation orgasm birth these kind of like Liminal substances. Liminal substances, the substance of the body and of growth and of change and of um, transformation. Transformation and, you know, uh, reproduction. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's sort of like a spiritual placenta? I, more like, <laughs> I don't want to be gross, but. Oh, be gross. <laughs> we live it's for more that. like a spiritual semen or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, you know, this it's potent. Things arise from it. The discarnate can take form in it. But that's the the very visual ectoplasm. But when I met spiritualists, ectoplasm wasn't just this visual white goo that you would see in the pictures. For spiritualists, it was a force. It was it was a force that could act on their body or move things or or create temperature changes or create hypnotic perceptions. It was kind of like an invisible force of the spirit world. Yeah, it's and, making me think of like midochlorians in Star Wars or something. It's yeah. like the substance that makes up the force. Right, exactly. Okay. And, okay. and so many of the spiritualists I met were dealing with invisible ectoplasm. And this was one of my big um, challenges was like, how do you photograph invisible ectoplasm? I mean, you, you know, like I had to, that's... Well, that begs the question: How do you photograph yeah. invisible so, so ectoplasm? So that's when I started Shannon? working with, yeah, like the with the long exposures, with just letting light and time do the work, and um, seeing what happened, and seeing if there was any correlation. Like not just not just making blurry, meaningless pictures, but seeing if I could make a correspondence. But then I did eventually. When I first began this project, I was absolutely obsessed with the idea that there may be mediums out there still doing Victorian ectoplasmic seances, just like the ones in the pictures that I saw. And it took me a really long time, but I finally did meet and photograph some of those mediums. And so, so it does still happen. It does still happen. It's very controversial. It's debatable over whether it is the the fluid of of the other world or if it's simply gauze and cotton. And some people see it as like a spiritual magic show. Some people take it at face value. Some people see it as like sh- more like shamanic magic. Some people see it as like, oh, it's actually this. This is actually happening, and the medium actually is producing this substance. And others you know just think it's totally meaningless and stupid it depends yeah, on the person who yeah. you're 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 speaking with but these mediums present as if it's real and I have photographed some of them and 
it's it was one of the most shocking visual experiences of my life because it was as if I was seeing those Victorian images come to life right in front of my eyes. Oh my goodness. So you actually did see it happen. Yes. There's a very um, controversial medium named Kai Mugi from Germany and he's probably the most famous right now the most studied slash famous slash also criticized medium working right now and he travels around presenting ectoplasmic seances and um, he works in Germany but he travels all over the world like doing these seances that's incredible you have a book that you're working on right now it's called seance spiritualist ritual and the search for ectoplasm and I'm so excited for this book can you tell us a little bit more about the project and where you're at with it Yes. So I'm very excited that I'm finally going to compile this 16-year body of work into a photography book. And it will be my images. It'll be hundreds of my original images. It'll be spiritualist objects from all over the world, clairvoyant mediumship, a lot on technology and spiritualism and a practice called instrumental transcommunication, which is these are mediums who are using technology like radios and video and um, audio recorders and I'm kind of riffing on it with my camera and then there's this whole physical mediumship culture that's a subculture within spiritualism which is those who are seeking to bring back this Victorian type of seance work and so I'm compiling it into this book but it will also have some historical images to frame the project properly meaning that I'm kind of working with this history in mind and the spiritualist photographic history is one of the most bizarre, absurd and uniquely unsettling moments in the history of photography and I feel like I'm building like a chapter onto that mm -hmm. like I'm a, I'm embracing all of the absurdity and the wackiness and the weirdness and the the scariness and the spookiness and um so I'm going to reference that too in the book and there will be wonderful essays and a foreword by Dan Aykroyd which is so wild to me so I don't think a lot of people realize that Dan Aykroyd one of the forces and stars of Ghostbusters that he actually comes from a spiritualist family so is he he's the one who introduced ectoplasm into Ghostbusters yeah is, I mean is that right yes the first time I ever heard the term ectoplasm was in Ghostbusters yep, you know yep. when I first saw the movie and that's why I was familiar with the term and I think that's why many people are familiar with the term but what they don't realize is that Dan Aykroyd is from four generations of spiritualists and that he's drawing the term directly from spiritualist practice and when people find that out they're kind of amazed although I think he's pretty open about this this past but it's just like a lot of people just don't realize it yeah oh my goodness so you have a ghostbuster writing the forward to your book yes. on ghost photography and then I'm gonna have three essays one by Tony Ausler the artist who's done all kinds of work on ectoplasm and the paranormal and he's got this amazing collection of uh, besides his amazing artwork he's got this collection of paranormal objects and 
pictures. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. It's compiled into the book Imponderable. Yes, I saw the show of some of his objects. I was up at Bard. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that last year or earlier this year? Yeah, I think it was 2016. Some was at MoMA and some of it was at Bard. Yeah, it's an unbelievable collection. I mean, just astounding. So he's writing an essay about yes. f- for for your book. Yes, and artist and writer, and also um, one of Tony's collaborators, Constance DeJong, is going to write about spiritualism and feminism. Yes, it's a topic close to her heart, and she's interested in the idea of spirit writing, and so that's something that she's working on that's related to spiritualism. Mm-hmm. And then Eric Davis, the cultural critic and author of Technosis, is going to write about technology and the religious imagination and how the artist comes into play he's so great eric is a he's a wonderful wonderful writer and he's been working in this space for a long time yeah yeah he yeah and his book is a must read so that's so exciting and now if i'm understanding correctly the model that you're using to put this book out in the world would you call it crowdfunding or patronage? Where are you at with that? It's with a publisher who's in the UK called Unbound, and they're a crowdfunding publisher. So it's basically an old model. It's actually how William Blake used to do his books, which is by subscription. Mm. Whereas like you, once you sell the number that you need in order to make the edition, then it gets printed. So it, it's new to us now, but it's actually like an older model where it, it's a pre-sale model. It makes so much sense though. So the book is available for pre-sale. And once we sell the number of copies that we need to, it'll go into production and then it, it will have great distribution both in the US and the UK but this is just to get the first edition published and anybody who buys the book via pre-sale will have their name in every edition of the book. Fabulous and I noticed there are all kinds of levels and incredible bonus gifts and add-ons. Can you talk about some of those too? Yeah there's some pledge rewards that are available that you can order in addition to the book like event spoon which are actually really lovely objects and a lot of them um, these are spoons that were bent by is it medium yes my friend um they they bend them with their minds um it's actually it's more of like they do bend them with their hands it's more of like an exercise in mind over matter um actually the first spoon bender was uri geller i believe he he began it and then spiritualists kind of like co-opted it as a thing like often in spiritualist camps you'll find spoon bending classes which i've taken (laughs) amazing (laughs) um and then there's clairvoyant readings from my friend susan barnes who uses art like she creates these wax drawings and then she does readings through them there's um going to be tarot readings available for my friend leticia barbier and there's prints for me and photo sessions for me and uh, other stuff. So, All kinds yeah. of other amazing goodies. So everybody go ahead and check that out. Go to shannontaggart.com. That's probably the best way for them to find it, right? Yes. There's a sampling of the images from the book that gives you a good overview of all the content that will be in the book. And there's press links. There's a short video. There's a lot of different assets that kind of tell you about the book and the project that are up at my website shannontaggart.com that's so exciting congratulations thank you well shannon your work is so beautiful i find it incredibly moving i can't wait to read your book and see even more of your work is there any other place online that people can find you in addition to your website instagram at seance book with an underscore and twitter as well seance underscore book yes okay 
And the publisher that I've been working with is Unbound. So unbound.com. And there's a link to my campaign page on my website right there. You can't miss it. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon. I loved talking to you. Thank you. Me too. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Shannon Taggart for apparating into my Brooklyn apartment for our chat. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Go ahead and drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com, and I might read your letter on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Pam Grossman. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Chiquita Pascal and Matt Freeman, the latter of whom informs me it's actually pronounced midi-chlorians. <laughs> he sounds nothing like that, actually. <laughs> you can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us lots of shiny stars. It makes a huge difference, and I'd be very, very grateful to you. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have an iPhone, you might dig my witch emoji for iMessage. Fill your texts with witches, spellcraft objects, and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors by searching for witch emoji, all one word, in the App Store or by going to witchemoji.com. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.